This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Do you have architectural visualization skills? Maybe you're asking yourself, what does that even mean? Well, you're in luck because today is dedicated to discussing all things related to architectural visualization and graphics. And we have the perfect guest on with us to do just that. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking architecture visualization and graphics with the person who I think of first when it comes to architectural visualization, none other than Alex Hograve. Alex is the creator of visualizingarchitecture.com, a website that explores architecture visualization and graphic techniques. He's also the co-founder of Design Distill, an architectural 3D rendering studio located in Boston, Massachusetts. Alex attended Bowling Green State University, Ohio for his BA in architecture and the Miami University of Ohio for his master's in architecture before moving to Boston to work as an architect. Today, he continues to refine his visualization skills through the development of new and challenging illustrations on his website, as well as lecturing and giving workshops and studying all visualization styles, old and new. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. Are you excited? Yeah. I'm always excited to... You don't sound excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, you should. No, it's weird because this is the first audio format. Normally, I go to places, to universities or to conferences and speak in person in front of people. And oddly enough, this makes me more nervous than actually getting up in front of people and talking for some reason. I don't know why. It's like a more intimate conversation this way. I listen to a ton of podcasts too when I'm at work. So this is like, I don't know. I think there's a more intimate discussion that happens, you know, through this medium. Well, I will be making some eyes at you later. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So first up, I want to clarify something because I made this mistake. And I think before we get too far down the road, we should let people know what we're actually going to be talking about today. Sure. So when I reached out to Alex and asked him to join us, I said, hey, here's some thought. What do you think? Yada, yada, yada. And I had a working title in place for today's episode called Digital Rendering and Graphics. And Alex, in a very non-snobby sort of way, I should point out, said, that's not the correct terminology for those in the industry. And I go, I don't know that. And so can you clarify, is there a distinction between the two? If I tell you digital rendering, What does that connotate in your head versus architecture visualization? Well, I mean, part of it is in this industry, we are all big snobs. And so we just like correcting people. It's healthy. That's the same for architecture. So that's no big deal. Yeah, that's true. You're right in the right spot. (laughs) Healthy attitude. It's just something that our industry, we always just say visualization. I think part of it is it's more all encompassing of everything. So you have illustrators that do watercolors. There's people that do VR. It's a very broad industry, whereas when you say rendering, that typically is describing what comes out of the computer after you click render on a 3D model to start throwing on light and letting the render engine calculate the light. So 
rendering typically is more of like a smaller part of a larger sure. thing that we do. So we just typically just say it kind of neuters out the artistic part of it. If I just call it a digital rendering, you're like, it's a rendering that was an output of a digital process. Great. That doesn't really speak to what it really means. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah. It just seems sort of yeah. less exciting. Well, I was yeah. thinking one's got two <laughs> syllables and one's got five. And I think you can charge more for five syllable <laughs> skills than you can for two syllable skills. Well, it's funny. My website is visualizingarchitecture.com and I changed that name like maybe four or five years ago because it used to just be called alexhorgrave.com. And a year into it, I was kicking myself. I was like, why did I choose visualizing architecture? Because it's such, it's so hard to say, like I can't <laughs> even say it right now, let alone trying to type that address into an address bar. It's just I regret it almost instantly. I'm not going to call you out on that, but I, Andrew and I were laughing before you got on the call. We were kind of taking little mental side bets as to how many times we're going to stumble over the word visualizing or visualization. It's a mouthful. <laughs> no, I can't say it either. So I try to limit it as much as possible. All right. So let's get into the actual show. That was a nice little departure. So sure. you went to architecture school. You went to graduate school. You have two degrees in architecture. I want to hear a little bit about your backstory. Like, How did you get to where you are now? How did you decide to pursue this path within the architectural industry? Because I would say there are people that reach out to me every now and then, and maybe they want to be architects, but they go, well, I'm not good at X, Y, or Z, or yeah. they've gone through the education process and they're like, I have four years worth of education under my belt and I don't really want to do this. Is there an alternative path or are there alternative career paths for me within this industry? And I always say yes, but to my great shock when I started thinking about it, this is not one of the paths that I frequently bring up. And I don't know why. So can you tell right. us a little bit about your backstory? How'd you get to where you are? When did you decide to give up on working in architecture? No, it's very true. <laughs> it's so true because I will say it did not, that idea of doing this full time never even crossed my mind until maybe six years ago. And that's after I had moved to Boston to work for an architect and had been working for him for four years. So like even going through school, I was dead set on pursuing architecture in grad school, dead set on pursuing architecture. I was going to take the test. I was going to do all that stuff. But growing up, even before I went into architecture, I drew a ton. So I always kind of had this background of drawing. Even before I was in high school, I was drawing people and people's pets and they're paying me to draw their family members and stuff because like I was so into this and I was so into drawing and I was really interested in building and designing buildings, but it seemed like architecture would allow me to carry over some of these skills into my professional career. So then I, I went through architecture school and then when I graduated from grad school, I moved immediately to Boston, which was the first thing that if you would have asked me a year before, would you be leaving Ohio? I would have told you no. Like that was just something that I would never do, kind of take that risk. And I always tell people that little jump from leaving Ohio, because I had not ventured out of Ohio up until that point. I had taken some trips, but like my plan was to stay in Ohio the rest of my life. So when I got this call to move to Boston to work for an architect, it was one of these first little risks that I took. So I moved to Boston with my wife and we worked for this architect for four years. It was right around then that I actually went 
to Dallas to be a juror for the Crab competition, which is an architecture illustration competition. That's actually where I met yeah. Bob for the first time. Oh, wait, wait, I got, wait, you said something that's making me giggle a little bit. So you call it the Crab? Oh, what is it? The K-Rob? K-Rob. Okay. I, like, I always I like, just call it Crab. I like Crab, to be honest with you. <laughs> this is, they should call it the Crab. It's smart. It should. It should. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so we actually met at the K-Rob. I was the MC moderator. Exactly. The truth is nobody cared about me. Alex was <laughs> the absolute star of getting you there. That was like a huge deal. That was a huge deal. No, that's funny because I was actually so excited. Perry Culper was one of the other jurors, and yeah. his stuff is so cool. And I remember being starstruck, getting there, and actually meeting him and getting to judge all these images with him. That was really cool. So I got back from the K-Rob event and I get an email from who is now my business partner, Andrew. He lived two blocks away from where I was working in Boston. And he just asked, can we go get lunch? So I met with him. He was running a really small studio, a visualization studio. And he was just picking my brain, kind of asking me, would you be interested in doing this? That moment was the first time I actually thought, oh, you can do this for a living. I had no idea that people in the States were actually creating visualization full time. I just thought it was all done overseas. I didn't think there was a big enough market, I guess, here to support visualization artists here in the States. Either way, that kind of got it in my mind. At that same time, the office I was working at I was starting to get a little burnt out. You know, I was working a lot of crazy hours. You know, not too long before that meeting with my business partner, I pulled like an 80-hour week. The stuff was just starting to kind of build up. And I think that timing of him approaching me, it just, for whatever reason, because again, going back to this whole moving to Boston in the first place, I'm just not someone to take these risks. You know, I went to undergraduate school. I went to graduate school to be an architect and I was dead set on doing that. But for whatever reason, I just jumped ship and went to work for Andrew, my partner, and never looked back. I never regretted it. Everything seemed to fit. What we were doing there was just exciting. Every day coming in, every week, we're doing a whole new set of projects for a whole new set of different architects. The turnover was really interesting. It was just very exciting. And then a few years later, me and him became partners, started up a new company, and have just been going hard ever since. It was definitely not planned. It was just something happened about six years ago that was just the timing was right, and I made the switch and never, never regretted it. All right, well, let me ask you this question because there's a part of that story that I think is fundamentally missing. Obviously, if people aren't familiar with your work, they will be after listening to this podcast and we'll put a bunch of your images sure. on the blog post. They're really incredible. I mean, I bring your name up to people and they're like, oh yeah, his stuff is amazing. So clearly, we know that there's an artistic level to what you do, but that kind of ability to think about an end product and how you were going about, and we're going to get into that in a bit, like how do you actually go about creating some of these images? Were you really good at that before? And it was just a skill set that you had and you nurtured it to make it better. And then where you worked, they're like, wow, Alex is really good at this stuff. We should have him do more of this stuff. Or was right. it something that you just 
you were good at at school and it was just kind of in your back pocket until you started to make this jump because when you started the original website, which was just your name and you were showing tutorials, that's when I found out about you. Was that just kind of like on the side, just something you're doing because it interests you? Yeah. So kind of going back to undergraduate school, my first three years, I was doing everything by hand and I was fighting the computer. Like I did not want to transition to the computer, but everyone else in my studio after the first couple of years, they had all bought laptops and they were all transitioning, building 3D models. And I just was holding out as much as possible. And at a certain point, I finally made that transition and I bought the laptop and I started working digitally. But the problem was the type of stuff I wanted to create you just couldn't find tutorials online. There just wasn't, these people were getting into the nuts and bolts of render settings and that just wasn't what I was interested in. So I started going onto Photoshop websites that were for graphic design artists and just going through all of their tutorials and figuring out how can I more or less digitally paint the stuff I wanted to do as opposed to really refining render settings and waiting a day for something to render out on these crappy laptops that we were using back then. And so I kind of took this different path into creating images for architecture. I started to develop some of these techniques or I'd find techniques, but they just weren't well known. So then when I got into grad school, late into grad school, I started up the website and just started throwing all this stuff on the website there was no kind of intention behind it other than I just thought someone might find this useful. And so I just started throwing tutorials and whatnot on there. I would say going through school, I definitely was maybe one of the better in terms of creating presentations or renderings. I was really into that, spending a lot of time practicing it. So I was doing pretty good. And that's actually how I got my job to move to Boston is the person that was there to review our thesis projects for grad school at the end of that offered me a job you know, right after nice. that. So oh, I moved to Boston. Yeah, I can imagine you were probably just killing it. I mean, if they looked anything like what you've got on your website, that it was blowing everybody out of the water. <laughs> I look at the stuff I was doing in grad school and I'm just disgusted by it, but <laughs> as we all do, as we all do. Yeah. Not me. My work. I was like, wow, that's peak. I, <laughs> yeah. peaked. Uh, I peaked in college. Yeah. Well, maybe so. <laughs> so when I moved to Boston and started working for this architect, I was doing all the illustrations in house for whatever project we were working on. It was a small office. So I was wearing a lot of hats doing technical drawings and, everything that goes along with working in a small office, but at the same time, I was still doing all the images. But I would say the website, my personal website is what kept the fire lit inside to keep working and keep practicing because the website a few years in started to pick up steam and you know actually started to get popular. And so I felt this pressure to keep it going. And so I kept working at it, kept working at it. But at the same time, doing images in an architectural office you start to figure out things that you want to learn otherwise from school, like what makes a good architectural image or what architects are looking for, what clients are looking for. So it all kind of fed off of each other. Do you think that now in the role that you have and the business that you're building, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I'm looking for more than a one word response on this one. Do you think that going through an architectural degree path benefited you more 
than going through a degree path that was say specific to visualization? Because I know like at Andrews College, he's a professor at AM. You can get a degree in visualization. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's actually a degree they offer. Yeah, but there's not very many of them in the country. The thing about it, right, is most of these people feed into places like Pixar and DreamWorks and that kind of stuff. So that makes sense. It's called visualization, right? And it's all computer stuff, but it's not focused on architecture specifically. Okay. But it is a visualization degree and they feed into that. I mean, I'm assuming somebody could come out of that and do what you do. Right. It's sort of that skill set, but maybe it's bent a little bit differently. Yeah, but I would think with an architectural degree, he's even better at doing what he does than somebody else because at some point the art comes into it and the actual ability to visualize the architecture. No, I agree. My assertion would be that going through architecture school and doing that would be better, but I guess that's the question we're asking you. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, for me personally, I needed that experience going through school as well as working in an office before starting out doing this full time. Because all we do is communicate with architects all day. We'll send them drafts of images and they'll come back with pages of red lines. And, <laughs> you know, I'm still dealing with red lines even after leaving the architecture office. But uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, putting down details and describing materials and very architecture specific terminology that you need to have an understanding. You need to be able to interpret. But like even beyond that, when I worked at this office, I did a ton of millwork drawings, designing millwork, just all kinds of different millwork. And just going through that process and understanding kind of how important a reveal is in like joints and thickness of materials and how materials wrap edges and all that nuanced stuff. It just makes you better at creating images for architects, especially interior images, exterior images. You understand how things go together and you understand the tectonics of this stuff. So you know how thick to make things or you know how to scale things. You know stuff about ADA, (laughs) which is like you never think that would come up in visualization, but just knowing like how tall and wide a standard door is or how tall surfaces are all that stuff comes into play and it just speeds the process if you're constantly going back and asking just these most basic questions about notes i think you kind of lose that relationship with the client with the architect i would say that's interesting i didn't even think about it from that way i mean that's part of the reason why i want to ask the question because it seems readily apparent that of course having some kind of fundamental knowledge about the thing that you're visualizing because i would imagine that the scale or the completeness of what you get as a starting point it's not even close to where it ends up you get a file that's at a you're being asked to bring it to m and how much of that you have to figure out that's where the artistic side comes to it which is one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about it seems readily apparent why it would be beneficial for you to have an education in architecture to do the type of work that you do. But it goes beyond that because when I look at your work, the word that comes to mind to me is, you may hate this word, so let me apologize in advance, is ethereal. And the reason why that word comes in because a lot of the stuff that I really like that you've done, it's never like super crisp. There's Mm. always some kind of mood that's really being conveyed through the image. And They're unique. I feel somewhat confident that if you put 10 images out in front of me, 
and maybe one, two or three of them are yours, I bet I could get them. I bet I'd be able to identify them. Oh, cool. And that's because there's an artistic side to what you do. And so as a result, you have a thumbprint that you leave on your product. You have a recognizable style as opposed to, it's not like a lookbook. Do you want this type of look or that type of look? Right. There's a filter. And I'm sure that's why people work with you more than once is they like the end product. And they're like, I like the way this looks. Just like all architects, they have pen weights that they like, or they have font styles that they like, or they have color palettes that they like to work with over and over again. So I want to talk a little bit about the artistic side and how that's evolved for you over the last decade that you've been working in creating these graphics, these visualizations. How's that evolved for you? Let's talk about art for a minute. Sure. When we were talking earlier about work I did in school and how I'm just disgusted by it now, it's one of these things that the more and more you do it, as with anything in this world, I guess, but the more and more you do it, the more you realize how little you know or how complex things really are. And so like early on when I was creating images, it was how can I just make this look cool? It was like, it's such a simple focus I had in school. Whereas now this can all be broken down into categories where you have the stuff that's a little easier to describe, like composition, color palette, how you light the scene. But then you have this whole other aspect of what's the narrative, what's the story of the image, how should the image feel, should it feel cozy, should it feel active and lively, is it in a big plaza with lots of people, or is it, should it feel quiet, should it be overcast, which tends to be more contemplative, do you have a lot of perspective in the image, or do you do a one-point perspective, which is more of a formal way of presenting an image. So there's all this complexity. And then on top of that, you have the whole technical side of things. So what can you do technically, which is just the deeper and deeper I get into this stuff, the more I'm realizing what I have to think about in each image. And so I'm juggling a lot more thoughts in each image. And it's about finding this balance within all that. When you find that perfect balance of all those different elements, that's when an image starts to become really engaging and when you really start to draw people in. I don't know, maybe I'm starting to go insane, but (laughs) the work that I'm doing on my website, my personal website, it's just each image is getting more and more grueling because I'm really thinking about each one of these things more and more and I'm trying to tease out why do this versus this? Why do this lighting versus this light? On top of that, I'm studying images all the time. On Instagram, I'm constantly just looking at what other studios are doing, what photographers are doing and studying. And I'm trying to understand things more than I was before. Before I was just trying to create cool images and I was experimenting and, oh, this looks cool. Oh, this doesn't look cool. Now there's so much more thought going into everything. And it sometimes it's painful. (laughs) It's just like you're building up your instincts is another way of putting it. You need to be able to look at an image and in a split second, know what you need to do to make it better, what to change, why it's not working or what it's not working. You need to build up these instincts for every little aspect of the image. So there's something interesting that you said there. I heard the word perfect in there, the perfect alignment of all these pieces. As an architect, it's hard for me, at least me, to ever think that what I've done is perfect. Mm Because at some point, it's more like, I just have to stop working because I have a deadline. In your opinion, is there the perfect? Do you make the perfect image or do you look at these things when they're done and go, ah, yeah, I could have done that better and fixed that piece. And, you know, is that part of the process? 
Exactly. There's never perfection. There's just getting as close as you can to it. But the problem is the goal line keeps moving the more and more I do this. And so images that I thought were really close two years ago, I look back on those now. And literally just one or two years ago, I'm looking back on stuff and like, oh, I was so far away from where it should be. It's just, if I go back to, I'm starting to feel like I'm going insane because I know my images are getting better, but I don't feel like I'm closing this gap between what I know is good and what I'm actually doing. I just feel like that gap is always staying that certain distance apart. And, you know, it starts to make you go insane after a while. Well, that's not a ringing endorsement for the field here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So one of the things that I'm curious about, because how I ask this question is I'm not even really sure. Is there a part that you go, man, I'm good. Like I'm the lighting guy, man. I am the guy to do that. I see. I'm not even asking a good question. I'm trying to figure out, I know you're very well-rounded because right? mm-hmm. I, I know what you do. I've seen what you do, but is there a part of what you do that you go, I'm really good at this. This is the thing that in my work, I'm most proud of. Yeah. Maybe it's more of like, I'm more confident in certain areas than I am in other areas. And The one thing I know or I'm confident in is anything with Photoshop. So let me backtrack here. So in our industry, there's a lot of different paths you can go, but the two main paths is is an image being completely done in 3D, meaning there's no Photoshop afterwards. Everything like trees, vegetation, people, all that stuff is just being done in 3D. The other path is more of a hybrid approach where you do a lot in 3D, but then you supplement it in Photoshop and you do 2D work on top of it. And given my path into this industry, I've always just heavily relied on Photoshop. And I know I can do just about anything I want in Photoshop. Where things get tricky is when you start to get into complex scenes for example, interior scenes where there's just a lot of detail and a lot of different lights casting, different shadows. It's very hard to Photoshop over something like that. And so you have to go into 3D and tackle a lot of this stuff. And I definitely, without question, my 3D skills are definitely not up to the same level as my Photoshop skills. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, in our field and just in general, technology is really it's going crazy. It's making a lot of this stuff that before you needed to be this technical wizard to do. It's just, it's simplifying all this stuff. And so the Photoshop side of things, I think is more the artistic side of things. And that's where I find things most interesting to be in. I'm more interested in being in the Photoshop side of things than in the 3D side of things. Because I feel like I'm using a part of my brain that's just more artistic, whereas, you know, the 3D side of things is just so technical and it's so setting-oriented that I tend to stay in the Photoshop. It's just more interesting to me, and therefore, I'm better in that area. I'm more confident in that area. Sure, I get it. Well, since you brought up technology, I want to ask this question. What's the biggest change that you've seen in your industry when it comes to technology? Going back to the software, it's just, it's getting smarter. It's making the barrier to entry smaller in visualization because, you know, you have software like Lumion, which I'm sure you guys have used. 
everyone's using Lumion because it's so simple. You bring in your model, you have this whole ecosystem inside of Lumion where they give you all the plants and all the vegetation, the people, the assets, everything's optimized. So you can just keep dumping stuff into Lumion and it just will take it because it's all optimized to work in that program. And then they make lighting super simple. They make setting up the environment and going from day to night, all that stuff's just super simplified. And so it's making all this stuff where before you used to just have to really have a good grasp on technology. Now you don't really need that super fine grasp on the details and all the nuanced settings. So the technology is just getting a lot smarter. And because of that, it's pushing our industry more and more, it's putting more pressure on us to get more photorealistic because even people coming out of school, they're able to render stuff easier and they're going into architectural offices and they're able to create images that are much better than what were being created a few years ago. So then again, that's kind of putting pressure on us who do this full time as a profession to get more accurate, more real. So the client expectations have changed as the technology has changed, you feel? For sure. You have to up your game. Otherwise, the phone at some point is just going to stop ringing. If you're not doing a substantially better job than what's being done in-house at the architectural offices, the phone's not going to ring. And so there's just more pressure from that. But there's also just, I think, a lot more people getting into the visualization field. And maybe not so much in the United States, but over in Europe and all around the rest of the world. There are so many visualization studios kind of Boy. entering into this arena and the competition's just getting insane. Yeah, I get many of those emails every day, right? <laughs> you wanna, yeah. want me to I, do that? I get so many LinkedIn invites and emails from people offering 3D services, really, really what it says most of the time. Yeah, oh, yeah, so many to the point that I have seriously debated putting in my bio, do not contact me for rendering services. Really? Don't do it. Yeah. I bet in a given week, I bet I get 20 every week, at least, at least that would be a regular week. Sometimes wow. it's six or seven. A day. I mean, I think I'm similar. I mean, maybe not that high, but yeah, all the time. It's nuts. I honestly had no idea that so much marketing because we don't market at all. We're just strictly word of mouth. We do projects for certain people and then other people see those projects and it just naturally grows. We never market. We just. You know what? Because that's how architects do it. Because guess how yeah. much business those people that just kind of spam my LinkedIn think? Nothing. Sure. If I need a service provider, if I need somebody who does what you do for a living, I don't just like lick my finger and stick it in the air and find out which <laughs> way the wind's blowing. There's sure. a process that we go through because in my office, we have a guy who's on full staff. His name is Chris. Mm -hmm. He kind of, I think, falls into the. I doubt he listens to the show. He's really good. But that's part of the fingerprint. Like you would never confuse what he did with what you do. It's apples and pineapples. But he falls into the, we'll model something fairly elaborately mm -hmm. and he'll take it maybe a little bit further in a 3D environment, but then he takes in the Photoshop and you'll walk by his desk and you'll go, pretty sure I see like 300 layers. <laughs> I mean, it's part of it is, is the question I was going to ask you about the client expectation. It's not even just the quality, it's the turnaround time. Sure. Because some of the people we work with, I'm pretty sure that we're working with a handler. Like there might be one or two that we've done work for, like when our guy's too buried, which happens. 
we have like five or six different groups that we kind of go, all right, well, these are the five or six people we like. I bet half of them, it's a handler here in stateside. And they're working with some kind of render farm that's yeah. off seas because we'll send them something and then we'll get something bright and early in the morning for us to redline up. We'll send it back and then overnight, all that stuff happens and it comes back to you the next day. The speed at which it comes is staggering. Yeah, And that's the thing that I worry about. If you can't, I guess it really speaks to your point. The artistic side of it's so important. There's the expectation of it's got to look a certain way, but then there's also that it's got to be fast, right? right? And trying to marry up those two. And I would imagine short order cook versus chef. You're willing to wait a little longer to get a better product as opposed to I'm starving right now. Give me like fastest thing ever. Grilled right. cheese right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Taco Bell versus the you know, Robuchon kind of dishes. Yeah, I mean. Nobody's going to understand what I just said. <laughs> I mean, they don't understand the Taco Bell part. I don't know about the other thing. My foodies out there, they know who Joel Robuchon is. Yeah. Going back to the timing, I think most of our clients know we get booked out pretty far out. So a lot of our projects are for things that, we know are going to be coming up maybe in a month. There's been a couple of points last year where we were booking six to eight weeks out, which is quite a bit of ways out concerning a lot of these projects. So let me put it this way. We're booking way out, but we try to leave a little room for people that come to us and are, we need something in two weeks. We rarely take something on that the client needs something in a week. Yeah, We're juggling so many images each week that we can't just absorb another project and do it that quick. When I say we're booking six to eight weeks out, we usually require two weeks from start to finish. So if something's six weeks out, we'll start in four weeks and then we'll finish sure, it sure. in two weeks. And that goes back to, we need time to build the model, clean things up, texture it, but then we need to leave time for feedback in that back and forth because that's where all the magic happens is making sure we get things dialed in. We just need time to sure. get to the place that the client wants it to be. Do you pass images around in your office? Like you're really good at lighting. So you're on complicated jobs, you're like, you take it to a certain point, then I'll jump in it to do the lighting. Or is it like a master painting and one person has complete ownership of the entire thing? <laughs> no. Uh, so we're six people right now and we don't outsource anything so and we're doing about 10 images a week so it gets to be quite a bit that it can't be as clean and simple as one person is the sole artist of that image the entire process everyone's kind of passing things around because something will come up and we just need to throw a bunch of resources aka people at this thing to put out this fire at the same time we need to keep these couple of images going because we need to send them off tomorrow there's just so much juggling that it's impossible to maintain some sort of authorship all the way through we're all just passing things back and forth and some people for sure are better at modeling some people are better at the photoshop but in general everybody does everything because there's times when there's no modeling everything that needs to be done is all in photoshop and so everyone needs to take an image and, and start working through it so no it's so much juggling and part of that is just because we don't have a ton of people so it's like a small architecture office everyone has to wear a lot of hats alex 
what changes that are coming in visualization have got you excited? What do you think is new? What should we be aware of as architects that's coming down the pipe? Or is there anything even other than more? So this is a double-edged sword because the things that I find exciting are also the things that will probably be our downfall as an industry. (laughs) Because it goes back to the software is getting smarter and smarter. And I was talking about, you know, my technical abilities aren't as strong as my Photoshop abilities. Well, the technical stuff is just, it's speeding through. Like what you can do now versus a couple of years ago is already huge. And so that's my weakness is slowly getting better for me with, without me investing a lot of time in that part. The problem is at a certain point, the software is going to get so smart that it's going to be making a lot of these decisions where Once AI starts getting embedded into all the software, there could be a point where we are no longer needed. Or our role switches from these technicians who choreograph, put together these images. Maybe our role turns into more of a photographer type role where everyone has a phone and they can go out and take photos, but you still go to a photographer because they have the sensitivity to how to compose an image or how to show a project in its best light. Maybe that's, we will become the photographers of visualization where the software is doing a lot of this work for us. And we're just making the decisions based on our skills as artists to make these images really engaging. So it's something I don't like to think about too much because it's (laughs) sad. Yeah. There's the whole VR side of thing, which VR, I think at a certain point that will become really big. I think the problem is right now is it's just not accessible enough. Everyone has a phone in their pockets that they can pull up and look at images, but to put on goggles and walk through a space, that accessibility is very limited. And so I think that's why maybe VR has not taken off the way I think a lot of people are hoping it will. Or We offer it in our office. Like we can do just about anything VR-wise, but no one's really asking for it. It's maybe less than 5% of what we're doing in the office. And yeah. we, we definitely push it. We say we can do it, but you know, no one's just really asking for it because it, It's just to experience VR, it's just not accessible unless you have a really expensive pair of goggles, you you need a really powerful machine. If you want something that looks halfway decent, you need to have some really good specs to push all those pixels into the goggle. It's not there. Honestly, I don't know when that will happen because when will experiencing VR and goggles, when will that be accessible to the masses? Right. Yeah, you know, I... We use a lot of VR in our office, but not with the clients. We'll use it as an in-house tool for the designers a lot of times. Right. Us using it as a link between what we're doing or what we're thinking or what we're trying to describe to the client. We do a little VR, we do a little AR. But one of the things that I was kind of curious about, and this is why I think your job, industry, I should say, not your job, but the industry is still somewhat protected because, so in our office, we use as part of our workflow a lot of times, we'll use SketchUp and Enscape. It's kind of a big player in our office. Yep. 
and we can very, very quickly export out some pretty nice images. And like in real time, we kind of have a phrase in our office, we call it working without a net. So we'll actually take the SketchUp model, turn on Enscape during a client meeting, and we'll walk the client through it. It's not static. It's not something that goes in a magazine. It's not something that goes on in press release. It's not something that goes on their website. It just, it helps the communication process. One of the things that I'm really interested about is as the skill set of all these young kids coming out of school is higher and better and more advanced and more evolved, what we're finding is I still use in the last year as a practice, as our firm has gotten better at the outputs of these, these renderings, these visualizations, our guy, Chris, he's just as busy now as he ever was. Sure. We've introduced more visualizations into our workflow, even though when somebody goes, I want a good one, not one that just looks okay and it's serviceable and is a good communication device, but a real output. Yeah, we don't do that. We send that to either Chris or if he's buried, we send it to somebody else. One of the things I'm kind of curious about is you mentioned Lumion earlier. I just brought up Enscape. One of the ones that we've been playing with in our office that I go, it's so easy is twin motion. Mm-hmm. And the thing about twin motion, and I don't know what I'm talking about here. So <laughs> this is a, don't think that he's played with twin motion. Right? I mean, I have, yeah, no. I have played with it and oh, there's right. things about it that I know more about twin motion than I do Lumion, if I'm being honest. But the thing about twin motion, from what I understand is that it really was born out of a gaming environment mm-hmm. and the things and the speed at which you can do stuff what your imagination used to fill in, the artistic part that allowed your imagination to take what you give them and finish painting the image. Things like twin motion, they're like, we don't need you to imagine it. We'll just do it. We can just stick that in there. Like, you want right. a tree? Do you want it fall? Do you want it winter? Is it snowing outside? What's the fog? <laughs> These are buttons that out of the box in like three minutes, you can be messing with stuff. Right. And I'm, what I'm curious about is I know that I, as these people who get proficient in these platforms get better and better and better, those are the same people that are going to be the next you, or it could be you still. Like I say this a lot that I know a lot about say steel. I know a lot about metalwork, but I don't know as much as the guy that does it every day, all day. Like it doesn't matter what I think I know a lot about the guy that does it all the time has me beat every single time. As long as there's still a need, right? There's going to be a need for people to do that because the expectation is someone will always be better if that's what they do. If you need it as a product, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It goes back to when I was discussing what makes a good image and kind of all these complex things that I'm juggling. I would say I'm working on probably literally hundreds of images a year. And still to this day, most of my time, most of my energy goes into composition and these artistic things that, to be honest, a rendering program or a lot of the software, it's not going to do for you. It's all this really, really nuanced stuff, stuff that I didn't see two, three, four years ago, especially when I was in college. This stuff that I'm seeing now, this sensitivity that has been built up over years of doing this and working on so many images, it's all stuff that it's going to be one of the last things that the software, AI, whatever will get to. And so I still think like what you're saying, the software can only do so much for you. Our value will be in the artistic side of things. Like just kind of, I don't want to say beauty because that you don't want to say that because there's so much more to it than beauty of an image. But like, 
how to create these compelling things. The more I'm doing this, the more I'm realizing there's certain nuanced things that lead to more compelling images than other things. And it's so complex and it's juggling so many things. And the software is just, it's not going to get to that level. So people coming out of school, they're able to do more and more things in 3D and the software is automating a lot of the stuff for them. But that's helping them on the technical side, but not necessarily on the artistic side. I guess that's where I was trying to go with it was that it doesn't matter how good people can get using the software out of the box. It right. still needs that additional sensitivity that goes into it because you know what? You were saying beauty and I go, that's a great word for it, actually. It's like, I don't need to know how the chef made my meal to appreciate it. Sure. Obviously, it's complicated and there's a lot of technique involved and they went to school for a long time and they've been practicing for years. When I eat whatever it is that I'm eating and I, I can appreciate it on esoteric values because at that moment, that's what matters, right. not how it was made. The execution, all that stuff goes into the final experience. And so I'm okay with the word beauty as a descriptor for the difference between someone who does it passively and with opportunity versus someone who does it professionally and with forethought and diligence. I think another way it could be said too is the more and more people are able to do this stuff, the more it's going to be important for to be good at the subtle, like everyone's going to be creating good images. So how do you set your, your stuff apart? Well, you got to get better at all these smaller nuanced things. And so right. it's yeah. going to be yeah. the small things the nuanced things that's going to set yourself apart because the, the bar, the level of what everyone's doing is just going to keep getting higher and higher. So you have to get better at these other things to kind of set yourself apart. I can't imagine a time where a software is going to kick out the kind of work that you're making. I mean, maybe you can because you can see it coming, but in my <laughs> mind, I just, I can't see a computer creating that whole image. It's hard for me to fathom that at least in that level of artistry. Right. I mean, I think it can be technically correct and, get the lights right in the shadows and you know all that sort of stuff that's really primal to me there's that extra layer that you guys as an industry can give that's beyond the software when i'm giving talks and whatnot i'm always saying there's this human element that i don't know how to explain what it is but there's this human aspect to images that some of the software that's really kicking out beautiful stuff right out of the box there's still this human element that it's missing that images need some sort of artistic fingerprint. Like Bob was describing, if you lined up 10 images and two of them were mine, you'd be able to pick them out. There's something to having some sort of artist fingerprint on an image. If we get to the point where everyone's just relying on what the computer's going to kick out, there's going to be something lost there. And it's going to be missing that special thing. Let's talk about that special thing in a slightly different capacity because we've been fairly generic in an esoteric sort of way, which is good. That's why we wanted to talk to you about it. But I did want to ask one or two short workflow questions that are specific to you and your business. I can tell you that prior to coming to Boca Pal, where I'm at now, mm -hmm. never hired somebody to do a digital image for me in my life. Never did it. And it wasn't because I didn't see the value. I just, what I did, there wasn't a need. People just... Right. Not something that they needed. So there might be a lot of people out there listening, the millions that listen to this, to these shows. <laughs> um, All across the globe. Across the globe to understand like 
how does that process work? So if you're working with a visualization company, how does that process start? So like, walk us through that. Well, obviously every, every I office. Every, I no, don't no, you, you, your office, your office. You, yeah. It always starts with having that introductory meeting exchange of information where we just get up to speed. We have a conference call with the architects or the developer or whoever the client is. They walk us through A, what they're looking for, but why they need it. What are they presenting it to? Because that usually influences you know, how we go about making the images because how it's being presented, if it's being presented in a public forum versus a competition versus just a single person client, that usually shifts how we go about it. And once we have that information, we go right into getting the model set up and every client's different. A lot of what we're getting now are Revit models, but we'll get SketchUp models, we'll get Rhino models. We just started a project where we just had floor plans. <laughs> we have to build the thing from scratch, which that really doesn't happen much anymore. Usually there's some sort of model and some of the Revit models are just fully fleshed out just fully detailed out. Some of the Revit models are bare, just volumes, and we got to go in and add that information. So we got to take all the information from the client, take the model, start cleaning it up. And some projects are four, five, six images, in which case it usually means different views of the model. So we have to spend a lot of time cleaning up different parts of the model. Sometimes it's just one view, in which case we treat it like a building a set for a play where you just, you're worrying about what's in that view and then you just ignore all, all the other right, stuff behind sure, it. Sure, sure. And so sometimes the model cleanup process is one or two days. Sometimes it's taken a whole week if it's a big aerial image with whole campus in it. Can I interject? Sure. When you say model cleanup, what does that mean? I mean, that may be a little technical, but. It just means the model, things aren't fully fleshed out everywhere. We have textures we like to use, higher quality textures. And so the model will come be given to us. Sometimes there's no texture. Sometimes there's really junky SketchUp textures or there's yeah. textures that the client thinks are good, but they're not really good. So we'll go in and we'll switch that out with all of our textures. So it's not necessarily removing. I mean, it is a removing as a cleanup, but it's really bringing it up to the level that you want it to right. be. I gotcha. Okay. Right. And then the biggest thing is because of how our workflow is, we do a big portion of it in Photoshop, we need to set the cameras. And so very early on in the process, we'll set up some view options. And again, every client's different. Sometimes they are very specific on what the view is. Other times they're looking to us for our advice. And so we'll, based on that, we'll set up the views, several options usually, send it to them, try to nail down that view because once we nail it down, it's set because we will not start in Photoshop until we know for sure that that view is good to go. Right. And so from there, we go into Photoshop and we render out the view. By then, we usually know, is it a daytime? Is it dusk? What kind of lighting? What kind of atmosphere? Is it very active? Is there lots of people? All that kind of nuanced stuff. We have that figured out. And so we go in and we Photoshop these images. You know, early on when we started the company, we actually weren't fully Photoshopping the images. We were kind of roughing stuff in and sending them to the client and saying, is this on the right path? What we realized is that always scared the client because they thought we were sending them a full fleshed out draft of what this was going to look like. 
And so we would get back just insane amount of comments of like, <laughs> tweak the lighting, do this, do that, because this just isn't working. So what we do now is we just fully Photoshop these images and just take them as far as we can to make them look really compelling. Because when we send those out, the comments are usually less aggressive <laughs> because they make sense. They're a little more excited about the images as opposed to these <laughs> rough drafts that we send. Yeah. They're like, wait, what am I paying for? This, right. This is yeah. too much stuff. And when we were doing these drafts, everything would have to be couched in. Now, listen, we're going to be adding a lot more atmospheric effects and we're going to be adding shadows to the people and stuff. It just So now we fully Photoshop these and we'll send it to the client and then they'll review and everyone marks up images differently. Sometimes it's a big list in an email, which is usually awful because we have to like read sentences and then try to coordinate where they're talking about on the image. A lot of times we'll just get PDFs with just a ton of leaders and red lines and comments just all over the PDF. That's great because we quickly see what they're describing and then we just go in and make those changes. And our office in particular, we offer three rounds of feedback. So we say, once we send you the first draft, we'll do three back and forth to really dial this in because we have to draw a line somewhere. Most of the projects probably do two rounds of feedback and we can usually get it in within that. Other projects will go all three rounds. And then there's always those projects that just, they just need to keep going with changes, in which case then we switch to additional services and then start billing like on an hourly rate. So, and usually if it's one or two images, we say, okay, we can maybe squeeze that in in a week, maybe a week and a half. If it's four to five images, then we'll say we need about two weeks. Occasionally, we'll have projects that are eight, 10, 15 images, in which case we'll stretch that out to like three or four weeks. At any given time, like right now, we're juggling, oh, I, we're probably juggling eight or nine projects right now, active projects, all at different phases. Each one of those projects, two, three, four images. I mean, it's a lot of images that we're working on during the week. And so it can get pretty difficult to juggle all this stuff and making sure we're hitting every deadline when we need to. So, yeah. It sounds exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the, the people who aren't familiar with your work, they should look at it. It's evocative and you can definitely see the difference. Like I mentioned earlier, we have people that do renderings for us and I look at them and I go, that's pretty good, but not to, I don't want to poo poo on the people that I know, but <laughs> or maybe I just get to cherry pick the ones that you actually put on your site. But there's definitely like, there's an emotion. There's definitely different kind of things that are emoted. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Getting into this whole process, I think the interesting thing to me that I'd never really thought about was you in the beginning saying that doing what you're doing allows you to actually do more projects or touch more projects. It's more interesting because you're getting new projects every week. We're in an yep. architecture office. Yeah, I'm not getting new projects every week, right? I'm <laughs> I'm dragging on them for months and maybe years. So I think that is an interesting aspect of what you do that I never really thought about. One thing that I think is really interesting is I have no idea how many active clients we have, like maybe 50 to 70 different architectural offices that we're working with. We're doing so many images. Like there's one client that we have that we just finished our hundredth project for them. 
and each project is two, three, four, five images. So that's a lot of images just for one office. You know, we're doing work for, <laughs> Cha -ching. yeah, we're doing some work for some really cool architects. And it's really interesting being on this side of things and on these conference calls, we're talking directly with these architects and with these designers. And I feel like I have a really interesting insight into just where design is with so many different offices. It's something that I would have never experienced just staying in one office. I kind of have this weird window into so many different architectural offices. And we actually do a lot of work with really big landscape offices as well. You start to see personalities in what's being designed with all these different people. And we actually, you do enough projects for these people, you develop this relationship where you know where this is going and get on the same wavelength. But I feel like just even as my design chops are as a designer, because like on my website, I still like the design projects that I then illustrate. And I feel like I'm just learning so much just by being on this side of things, working with all these architects and working on all these really interesting projects that they have going on. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that it's a way to continue. It's like you're one team member on a team that's developing a project. So, right. and you get to work on a lot of them. Now is the time. No more questions from Andrew. Oh, come on, man. I had like 20 more. Nope. That's fine. Nope. I'll ask you after. Yeah. Cause it's time. Cause you know, we don't want these episodes to be 14 hours long. So you're familiar with the hypothetical question. Awesome. We actually sent Alex today's question in advance yep. so he could think about it. So here's the question. You are given the option to take a pill that will make you a genius in any specialty or field that you choose. But along with the renown that comes with you being a genius at whatever it is that you choose to be a genius at, half of the people you meet will think you're literally the worst person they've ever met. So knowing that, would you still take the pill? And as the guest, you get to go first. You have to go first so we can make fun of your answer. Yeah. Perfect. Because and, since, and it's my question, which means I get to go last. Oh, I get to judge this is everybody. yours today. All right. Yeah. This is the perfect question for me because I have this huge fear of people hating me. And so <laughs> if the hypothetical ended in people just wouldn't know who you are, I'm perfectly fine with that. But the fact that it's people, half the people in this world hate you, that really threw a wrench in it because I hate that about myself, but I really do. I don't like when people don't like me. That like really bothers me and it eats at me. My first instinct was like, oh, then no, I just, I'm not going to go for this. But then I was thinking there's a few situations where I could override that and still die a happy man. And that's these situations where, okay, what if you're finding a cure for cancer and you are somehow able to solve this problem that mankind has been fighting for ages, knowing that you could cure cancer or really push that forward. I feel like given that people still would really hate me as I'm on my deathbed, I think deep down, I'd be like, I still helped a lot of people. So that's the only situation. But if you're, if it's a, like a guitar player, a guitar <laughs> player or like great architects, like you just are genius yeah. at designing buildings. No, not worth it. Absolutely yeah. not. I will say before Andrew gives us his answer, we need to like kind of, we have to attack you first. 
And I will say that for all the people out there, because I've asked a few people this question and a lot of them are like, no, that, that sounds terrible. I will put the caveat that the people that hate you don't want to kill you. It's not that kind of hate, <laughs> right? Sure. You're not in jeopardy of walking outside and somebody deciding that they need to end it for you. You're not the world's worst tyrant kind of hate. Yeah, you're right? not like Hitler, right? So they're like, well, we got to end that guy. But Well, let me ask you this. Will history change or will it be through all of history that half the, the people will still hate you? Or could it, as the people that are here now, as they disappear and other generations come up, could they see what you did and then things change? Or is this just forever? No, I think it's forever. I don't think okay. that people obviously like hate you, but you're known as being like a jerk. They like, oh, that guy was a genius, but God, he was really, he was an unpleasant, nasty person. And other people might go, yeah, but that's kind of what you get with genius. If you're going to get the genius bit, there's a bit of the madness that always comes with it. Because right. I don't think that no geniuses are reasonable across the spectrum for the most part. Yeah, I agree 100%. So I think even with the options, right, for people to go, I don't want people to hate me. I go, don't you have a moral responsibility to take that pill if you think that you could choose something that could actually save lives, right? Like right. you don't want people to hate you, but it's okay. You're going to let how many thousands of people die because you don't want that burden of people not liking you? I go, that sounds pretty selfish to me. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, I was going to say he took a page from your book really and turned it to this altruistic sort of thing right where <laughs> i could do this as long as i was helping humanity right as yeah. long as i was saving the world look, look. <laughs> i could do it because again look. that never entered my brain this whole thing i was like mm, no yeah yeah i think andrew took a makes page fun of me book. look andrew makes fun of me on every single one of these because he goes you have a god complex because all my answers <laughs> it's like like i want to make the world a better place i want to save lives and he's like that's not why you want to do it. And I'll say, is it so bad that I want some credit for doing it? I mean, I still want the good thing to happen. I just want credit for having done it. So if you cure cancer, which that's a whole different other kind of conversation, but let's say that you cure cancer. I'm okay with people going, that's the guy that killed cancer. <gasps> like that, I'm okay with that because right. there's a lot of good that came out of it. I'm willing to take on that kind of burden. But he's a jerk. <laughs> Okay, Andrew, what's your answer? What's it going to be? Yeah, my answer is yes. It's fine. It doesn't really matter to me what the skill is because I feel like maybe 50-50 already on the people that hate me that He's like, me. if he so gets the 50%, it's fine. improvement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 50-50 may improve my odds, to be quite honest, right? Like, <laughs> that's a step up. And so I don't think it's a question. I think it becomes more about what the skill is or what makes me a genius and what specialty. And I, that part, I don't know. There's part of me that thinks about it from the standpoint of, again, when we go and we always go down that path of criminality or whatever to somehow <laughs> I get to be a genius bank robber or something that that's my specialty or a genius in the stock market. So he's I a, make a he's lot of money. It's a genius safe cracker, you know, <laughs> or it's some other thing. Like I'm a genius surgeon or a mathematician or a scientist or something like that. So that there's some applications for that. So I get muddy on the specialty. But on yeah. taking the pill and having people hate me, yep, don't care. I'm good with it. It's fine. Yes. Is that, I, so I that, don't have that huge need to make people like me because I feel like they don't already. So, <laughs> Wait, wah, wah, No, I'm okay wah. with it. I, I feel like I've always been that way. He's, I'm a hard person to, to get to know, I think, because in reality, I'm a bit of an introvert. And so you get used to thinking people don't really like you anyway. Well, that's so interesting. I was operating under the assumption that 
people don't already dislike me. And, you know, after hearing Andrew, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I'm just like Andrew. I'm very, I consider myself a big introvert, but in a different way, I care so much about what people think that maybe that's why I'm such a big introvert and I don't put myself out there as much as I should. But maybe I shouldn't be making the assumption that so many people like me already. Well, hey, man, I just met you and I like you, so you're good. Let me make it even worse for the two of you. When I said that half the people you meet will think you're the worst person ever, it doesn't have to do anything with necessarily what skill you chose. They just meet you and they think you're a jerk. Yeah. Half of the people that meet you, because it's the idea that it's some of the blow cushion because they go, he's a genius, but a jerk, right? Like there's some leeway that we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the question that we're willing to extend to the, the geniuses and the mad geniuses, right? Kind of the, ugh, they're impossible to deal with, but they have this other redeeming quality that elevates them to such a point that people put up with it. It gives them a pass. Yeah. Like you could say, all right, I'm the guy that cured cancer. But when you go to the grocery store and the checkout person goes, God, that was like the worst guy I ever met. You know, they don't know that you cured cancer. They just think you're the worst person they've ever met. Like there's <laughs> going a huge. Just going to the grocery store and half the people are giving you dirty looks. Half the people right? there hate you. Half of the people there <laughs> are going to hate you. And so yeah. you don't even get, it's a hugely disproportionate number of people who actually know that you're a genius at whatever thing you chose. Like I could go to the grocery store and be standing next to the guy that is like the world's greatest neurosurgeon. I have no idea. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So he gets yeah. no points for saving lives and being a genius at being a neurosurgeon. Right. Yeah. I just know that I can't stand that guy. <laughs> right. You know, like, no, something he's about him. the worst. Yeah. He's the worst. So that complicates it a little bit more because then you kind of go, well, then do I choose something that ups my people know who I am? So I get that credit. You know what I mean? Like, do you choose something that can actually save lives? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) That, that nobody knows. That nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. So so nobody really cares that you're a genius because you know, it's only the people that you directly interface with. You have to wear a shirt that says I cured cancer like all the time. (laughs) As opposed to 50% of everybody that you just walk by hates you. Or do you choose something that goes like, I'm going to be this genius at like playing the guitar or like I'm a rock star or whatever it is. And like, lots and lots and lots of people know who you are. And so that mm, kind of, kind of tilt the balances back so that for every like person who hates you, you kind of might run into the person that like thinks you're <laughs> like us. Wow. That, I ran into that guy today. Right. Nobody wants to admit, but we're all thinking, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> no, a, I think it's a, it's almost like a celebrity status is what right. you want to get out of your specialty. Right. Yeah. To offset the bone yeah. soul crushing <laughs> hate that you get <laughs> everywhere you go. Yeah, but I feel like it's probably that way for a celebrity anyway. Maybe it's not 50-50, but there's still a lot of people that hate them just as much as there are people that love them. I don't know. I got Brad Pitt. Do you think there's an equal number of people that hate him as love him? I think he's way out in front on the love. I bet there is. I bet there is. (laughs) Well, definitely politicians. Uh, Well, yeah. That's the wrong kind of celebrity. Yeah, I definitely, that would not be my, my area. Yeah, yeah I'm going to be a genius of politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, no. That is one of the things, because I think that I would struggle. I mean, the fact that I answer like stupid email questions all the time for people, mm-hmm. because I go, it matters to them. And they reached out to me for help. And I go, I shouldn't be answering this question. Like people will ask me, what should I do with my life? And I go, I don't know you. You should not be asking me <laughs> for my opinions on this. I mean, I have no data to work with here. But yet, 
they felt enough to email me because my opinion mattered to them. How do you not respond to that email? That's a big part of it. So I sit there and I mm -hmm. think, actually, like if I really think about how my day would go with 50% of the people I come across hate me. I really worry about, do I have the mental fortitude to take? Because I know people don't like me now, but it ain't 50%. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a lower number yeah. and that makes it okay. But if it was one out of every two people hates me, boy, that'd be tough. That would be tough. It's funny. You're sitting there saying that I'm thinking about with today's social media and all the interactions. you imagine that like when you posted something, say on Instagram, every other comment was mean about what you were doing. <laughs> so you get a good yeah. one and you get a, you suck. And you need to like, Hey, that's great. You're like, you're the worst person. That would be tough. I think Yeah, yeah. that would get tougher. I just would stop. My genius would, would pull That's me why I was that. like, so if it was just picking some, like some random skill, whatever it is, there's no way I go, I'm not taking that pill. Cause I really, I don't think that I could make it having half the people I come across hate me. I just don't think I can do it. Even though if I chose a skill that would save lives, I go, that's the only way I can get myself to a place where I think it's even <laughs> conceivable that I could do that. And then the truth is, is you'd be like house right on TV. Everybody hated that guy, but they respected him. They didn't like him, but they respected him. Yeah. I go, that's got to figure into this. So I don't know. I'd have to be saving some lives. It's the only way I'd say yes to this. I think it's one of these things too, that the first couple of weeks would be awful. But after a year of dealing with people hating you, I think you would actually build some thick skin. You get used to it. I don't think it would be as devastating as maybe you're saying it would be. No, no, okay. I said that they wouldn't come up. You're not at risk. No one's going to like take you out. I didn't say they wouldn't like spit on you. <laughs> you know, you're like, I'll take this bag of oranges and somebody spits on you and calls you a pig or whatever it is. That could happen. They hate you. They literally <laughs> think you're the worst person they've ever met. I think what's really worse is if you think about it at a certain point though, in your, get into the weeds here, but there's a limited number of people that I interact with on a daily basis, essentially because of where I live and the size of the town and all that stuff. So at some point that pool kind of evens out. I've run into all the people that hate me and I'm running into all the people that like me, but like, imagine moving, like I'm going to move now and have to start that process all over again to right. determine all oh, these people hate me and these people don't. I think that would be the challenge. Or I just move somewhere to like this tiny little town where there's only 10 people and five of them like me and five of them hate me and we're good to go. I don't ever have to worry about it ever again. Yeah. There's a, that's not a bad way of looking at it. Cause then it, online interactions and social media and that stuff I could manage. I mean, it would suck, but I could just turn it off at a certain point. You'd kind of get that navigated in the pool that you're in. But then when you switch pools, it starts all over again. Or even, can you imagine, for example, we go somewhere to give a talk, you go somewhere to give a lecture. And Boo. Oh yeah. I know half oh, the people man. there like, the <laughs> they're there to protest you as much as they are to, to love you. Right. Oh, and you're God. like, Oh, that would be hard. All right. I think that would be hard to do. So my daughter is one who asked me, like, could you be physically at jeopardy? Because I said, like, oh, you're worse than Hitler. And she's like, yes, yeah, somebody could have, like, taken him out, though. Like, <laughs> is that the option here? Right. And I go, yeah. no, no, no. We're not going to make it to where somebody's going to kill you. So we'll say you're safe. Yeah. And I sit there. And the I'm, worst you get is verbal abuse. Yeah, but no, no. The worst thing that came to me is not, okay, just, like, short of being killed. I go, I would much rather be, like, sucker punched then spit on, right? Like that was, that's the, that's the worst my brain went to is being spit on. That's the most demeaning thing that could happen. Yeah. Can you imagine you're like zippity doo da, then whack, I go, oh, it just, 
my day would be done. And they're just like, you're a jerk. Yeah, I yeah. just, oh, God. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Okay, so Alex is a take the pill, save lives. Yep. Andrew is a take the pill and not save lives. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a don't take the pill unless I decide to save lives, then I take the pill. See how I play both sides? I don't think that's really an answer. But my question is, like, is there a number of lives? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, because I, mean, I feel like be even if you're the best surgeon, if you're the best surgeon in, in whatever, that's really not, over your lifetime, you're not going to impact enough people, right? Yeah, you'd have to do something like cure cancer. Yeah, you got to be a research doctor. Yeah, yeah. Suffering, something that involved a lot of suffering, that would be my cure, something that did. All right, so this was an illuminating conversation. At least it was for me. I hope it was for you as well. But I think it's time to wrap this episode up. We'd like to thank our guest, Alex Hograve, for visiting with us today and shedding some light on architecture visualization. Absolutely. This has been really awesome. Thanks for having me. And I've been a big fan of Bob. I've been following you for a long time. So it's, it's just, it's nice to actually talk to you. Thank you, Alex, for joining us today on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being with us today for episode 59, Architecture Visualization and Graphics with Alex Hograve. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get freshly squeezed new episodes every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star That Looks Real rating. <laughs> Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around to the very end because if there's any bloopers, that's where you'll find them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. And so it hears me like do a big like, <gasps> or a I don't, I don't disagree with it. It probably is exhausting to talk as much as you talk, Bob. But... Oh God, whatever. <laughs> whatever. He's like, he's starting off early. Were you proud of yourself for that one? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I, felt, I like that. Well, you, you lobbed it up there though. That was too easy. And today we're talking Oh man, see I didn't fix that. You didn't fix Hold it. On. I don't try to remember stuff anymore, Alex. That's what that's what happens when you get old. You're like, screw it. I'm just gonna write it down. One day I'm gonna take advantage of that. <laughs> I would bet you a thousand dollars that there's an open can of paint somewhere in my house. <laughs> I would even be able to go, you know what? I give you over under. I bet there's four cans of paint that are in some degree <laughs> of openness. Andrew, you want to take the next one? I don't even know what the next one is. I sent it to you in the chat. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. It's like, Andrew, well, he's new at this. We've only been doing it for about Shush. two years. Um, <laughs> don't act like that popped up while you were saying it was in the chat. No, that's not true. That is true, because I was just looking at it. Um, uh, so we, we hate each other, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had this relationship with people now. <laughs> and you cool. can say, thanks for having me. This was oh, the yes. greatest. No. This was the best <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. I'm regretting this so much. Crickets. Thanks, man. I don't know. I don't know when I can talk.